Well, good morning. If you can't tell, there's uh, two stools up here this morning because we actually have a guest before we jump into the message. I don't know what I'm doing with these stools. We're getting them here. But yeah, I'd love to invite Ruben on up to the stage here. Here you go. Thanks, Michael. And a a month ago, we did something called an all of life interview, which you guys may or may not remember. But it was awesome hearing Allison share about uh, how God works in her workplace. And so Ruben's here today. I don't know if our mics are not getting along or what, but we'll see how it goes. Turn this way. Yeah, really, here's your value. We believe that our work matters. We spend the majority of our time at work, and we believe that our mission as a church of following Jesus, loving people, inviting others to do the same, that God wants to do that in our workplace through us. So I'd love to hear from Ruben a little bit about what that's like for him. And yeah, let's start off with, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, uh, Grant was talking about that old building there. Um, I actually grew up in this church. I wasn't actually born in the church. I was born in a local hospital in Mission, a different location. But um, no, I remember sitting with my uh, mummy over on the left-hand side, men on the right-hand side, I think. <laughs> no, but uh, it, um, it was, um, it's been a privilege kind of to be in this one church. Hi, Brady. <laughs> The, um, uh, my working career started in a uh, local sawmill down the road, and um, that kind of progressed. I um, got wood in my blood, so to speak, um, went on to uh, lumber grading and then to uh, quality control um, direction kind of focus in the mill, and I've uh, worked in probably over, well, over a dozen um, sawmills and uh, remanufacturing facilities, whether it's uh, directly employed by them or as a uh, consultant or as a um, uh, inspection okay. situation for some of our product that was being manufactured off-site. Yeah. But, yeah wow. So yeah. everything in sawmills, basically, Pretty is much. what I'm hearing. Yeah. Okay. And what do you love about your work? What I love about my work, and some people have asked me this, and like over the years I've kind of progressed, but um, you know, we always grow, we hope, right? But um, I tell people that my line of work is full of a lot of challenges. You know, as a manager of people, uh, process, and uh, equipment, um, it's almost like I don't play. A, I don't have a lot of time for computer games now. But when I did, I really enjoyed the genre of uh, adventure games. Okay. And that was where you wandered around, you met people, you saw situations, you found that they had some trouble and then tried to solve that, mm. you go around. And that's kind of like what my job is, really. I look around at the process. Um, basically, I have to walk around with my head on a swivel. I'm looking for safety, for efficiencies, and for quality. And I have to interact. And it's always a challenge to be intentional about that, because it's very easy to um, um, exercise uh, condonance. Mm. What that is, is when you walk along, and um, you can't assume that people don't see you. So anything that uh, happens, um, I have to be aware of. And I may miss some things. And I have to be intentional and go to you know, interact with whatever the situation is. Um, because people will tend to, um, they're doing their job. And they may be doing something that's not quite right. And if I don't notice that, if I'm just walking by, they will make the assumption that I've seen them do whatever's wrong. And 
that's not very good for you know being consistent and um, following the procedures, right? But um, it's so it's an interesting challenge, and I may miss things, but I have to be very intentional about um, what I address and yeah, yeah. and in, interact with. Yeah. And like every job, kind of comes with thorns and thistles, the hard parts, yes. the challenges. Yeah. Where do you see that in your workplace? Yeah, no, like uh, there's always lots of challenges and things that go wrong. Like it's just a constant battle. Um, things don't maintain themselves. Uh, mm -hmm. Same with uh, people and relationships. Mm -hmm. um, thistles. You think about prickly people. Well, I have to manage prickly people too. Huh. I divide people into three groups. Since it may sound very simplistic, but there's the, uh, the keeners, the leaners, and the in-betweeners. And as a manager, I tend to the appropriate way to deal with things is spend um, most of the time with your in-betweeners and try to raise them up to a superstar level. And the superstars, just point them and shoot, right? The leaners, you try to get them to follow policy and, and follow the rules and, you know, hopefully they don't fire themselves. But um, <laughs> the, the trick is um, how do you engage people, right? And how do you, I, I think that leads into further questions, but um, it's not just a matter of, um, I think as in life in general, we can kind of choose to avoid people that are not aligned with our values, our ideals. Mm -hmm. um, they feel a little bit uncomfortable when we're with them. Um, my challenge always is that I have to engage them just as much as everybody else mm. and um, seek to develop relationships with that. Um, yeah, there's... Um, there's lots of examples of that yeah, that yeah. Are, are confidential in nature. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair yeah. enough. Yeah, and so how do you seek to follow Christ in your workplace? Are there any specific ways that you've seen that? Yeah, so, you know, in relation to that, as far as conducting myself with integrity, um, I tell people that, um, you know, I ask the question of people, like when we hire new people, I go through indoctrination and training. And um, I always ask the people, um, what is respect? Is that something that's earned? Or is that something that's freely given? Right? Hmm. Well, there is a, you know, the, interest, the English language is interesting and that respect is something that, you know, if I conduct myself with integrity and consistency and fairness, I will probably gain respect of people, hmm. right? Um, but I would, I suggest to them that no matter who people are, um, every human deserves respect. Even if people disrespect me, I'm not going to allow them to control how I respond. Um, I need to treat them with respect still. Hmm. And I think that wins a lot of uh, conversations and diffuses uh, arguments or potential uh, situations that go south quite poorly, right? Um, as far as how I interact with people, I can think of, you know, uh, like a number of different characters over the years that I've uh, interacted with and, and actually become friends with in a strange way, right? Um, not that I'm going to go to their house for a barbecue or stuff like that, but we can have an honest conversation and they understand yeah. that I'm going to listen, right? Um, when somebody, um, when I interact with something over a, a, a kind of a high pressure situation and maybe tempers are elevated um, and um, people may use inappropriate language, be disrespectful, um, I can simply ask them to, hey, let's just try to calm down. I'm not trying to, you know, nobody's going to get in trouble or anything like that. But I do want to find out what the challenges are behind what, where you're coming from. Because mm -hmm. people have their own um, 
it's a bad term, negative, but it's baggage, right? Um, they have their past histories, different things that have happened in the workplace, in the environment, and possibly at the same job where they're at right now. And these are still fresh in their mind. And maybe nobody's really talked to them about it, right? Mm. But um, yeah, it's just funny, you know, that there's one person that was, uh, you know, in a union mill environment, um, there was a fellow who was, had the reputation of be careful around this guy. He's gonna, he's gonna burn you. He's gonna take anything you say and try and turn it around. So you have to have that kind of notion in the back of your head and be, um, you know, sly as a fox and gentle as a lamb. Um, but in talking to, uh, like, a lot of these people, they have good ideas, mm. but they've been discounted because of their delivery method, right? Um, so it's important to me to, you know, allow people to speak their mind, but then to get to the root issue as far as what's really bothering them and try and, try and bring some resolution. Yeah. And develop relationships. So it sounds like you have just a really different perspective on the value of people than normally you experience in that type of workplace. Like my experience yeah. in that type of workplace is like you earn value. Yes. You're not valued as a human until then. And you kind of come in going, God values you. Yes. I'm going to value you as a human and realize you've got potential that might just be getting hidden by your past experiences. Yeah. That's crazy. That's really cool. It is neat. Man, that was, yeah. Side note, that would be a privilege to have a boss in that type of industry takes that perspective. That would bring some amazing things out. So are there any things we can pray for you specifically? Well, for me, it, it, you know, boy, the basics are wisdom. Yeah. How to deal with situations, um, how to interact with people, um, <laughs> how to show kindness. You know, we communicate in different ways. Always, and always have to be guarded as far as yeah. how, you know, what is communication? It's, um, it's the words, it's the inflections, and it's the physical language, right? Mm. I always um, get into a soapbox here again now about text messages are the written language, no inflection. A telephone call is the uh, language and some inflection, but I don't get to read what, you know, how you're responding, how you're receiving the information, yeah. right? Hmm. Um, and in person um, is the very best, right? And then, of course, but even still, you've got to be socially intelligent somewhat. You've got to understand how people are receiving the message that I'm giving and that they're on the same page, right? Hmm. And what I, how I talk to yourself or to anyone else, and especially in the workplace environment, um, I may deliver that differently depending who it is and how well I've understood where they're coming from and their background, right? But, right. Yeah, so those, those things as far as the interpersonal relationships are always, I have to be on my guard. Yeah. I have to conduct myself with integrity, mm. um, show respect and love to um, everyone that you know, I work with. Yeah. yeah. Great. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. I would love to close up in prayer. And does anybody else work in the mill or just generally the lumber industry? Okay, we've got quite a few people we could pray for. So we'd just love to pray for all of you together this morning real quick. Father, we just thank you for Reuben. We thank you for the work that you've given him in the mill industry. We praise you for the task that you've given each of us to do in each of our workplaces. Uh, we really pray that you would give wisdom to Reuben and give wisdom to us all so we can discover how to bear witness to Christ in the world, in our workplaces. Pray particularly just for the challenge of just the different people that you work with and understanding where they're coming from, valuing them even when they're giving you a lot of reasons to uh, lose respect and devalue them. Pray for everyone in this industry for that. And I pray that you just continue to give them clarity as he communicates that they really 
experience what it's like to be valued as you value them, not just as they're typically valued in the workplace. We thank you for the life and goodness that you've brought to Ruben's workplace, and we pray that Christ would be present in that place and present with your servant Reuben. May we all have grace and strength to live Christ-centered lives in the places you send us. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Thanks, Michael. All right. We have a lot of talking in this service, and there's a little bit more coming still. So uh, that being, let's, yeah, it's going to fall. Okay. We actually use the mic stand. Every time I step on this, it slides. I almost did the splits earlier. I'm really, yeah. Speaking of maintenance, I don't know what we need to put on the bottom of that. But anyways, I'm glad to be here this morning to get to share a message with you. I barely made it. Yesterday, I woke up with no voice, and I texted Grant being like, so can you figure out how to run a service without me? And he was like, of course, it's easy. We don't need you. (laughs) And the team scrambled, and they figured it out. And I woke up this morning far better I do have most of a voice. And yeah, I'm excited because we're wrapping up our series, One Another. And it's our final Sunday. It's going to be a little bit of a different focus because the title of the message this morning is Make One Another. And yeah, I think for me, this is probably the most challenging message of this series. This is the one that I personally find the hardest. So I want to jump into that, because you ever say, I should? Anybody ever say, I should? I think most of us use the English language. We say the word should. And I've learned to pay attention to the word should, because I remember as a small child, when I, this matters to the story, when I had my baby teeth still, I knew that I should brush my teeth. And my parents taught me how to brush my teeth. And they tried and they tried. And I knew that I should brush my teeth well. But my toothbrushing technique was to count to 10 as fast as I could while I brushed my teeth. I was like, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Teeth are brushed. And I knew I should do a good job, but I didn't really feel the need to do a good job. I was like, I should, but do I really need to? And the funny thing about should is you won't. And because I felt like I should, I really didn't brush my teeth well until as I was losing my baby teeth, I have a molar pop out. And I look at it and I'm like, there's a hole in it. I had a little Swiss army knife with a corkscrew on it. It could put the corkscrew through the cavity in my molar, which I hope isn't too graphic for you. It was graphic enough for me, though, that I went from I should brush my teeth to I need to brush my teeth. Instead of I should and I won't, it went to I need and I will. And since then, I've done an okay job of brushing my teeth and even occasionally floss. I'm still working on feeling the need to floss. I mostly should floss. I'm trying to avoid eye contact with Bill and Gloria right now because they're dentists and it's uncomfortable. (laughs) But I think that we can all relate to the should, right? Like, it's really funny because, like, sometimes you're like, <coughs> excuse me, I should work out. I should go to the gym. But you don't really feel the need unless you're a young man and suddenly there's a girl you're interested in. And you notice that they only look at the guys that are buff, and suddenly you're like, I need to go to the gym. 
Dad, how do I get buff in a week because I need this girl's attention? Or maybe you're a little later in life and you're at work and you pick up a box and the box doesn't weigh very much, but you hurt yourself and you're like, I should go to the gym again. Now it's not about looking good, it's about surviving my office job. I need to pick up 10 pounds, right? And it goes from I should to I need. I should and I won't to I need and I will. And sometimes, I'm definitely in the should stage of this. Sometimes you're like, you think, I should eat less bacon. Like, I think, feel like every guy goes through life and is like, I should eat less bacon, but I won't. Trust me, I won't. Until that day that you go to the doctor, as many men have. I don't know if this happens to women, but many men have. You go to the doctor, and the doctor looks at you and says, so if you keep eating bacon, you're going to live about five years. If you quit eating as much bacon, you could probably live 20. And then you go, okay, I need to eat less bacon. And you make a change. And it's so hard. But <clears throat> it's about where your heart's at, where your desire's at. Where you're like, this isn't just saying I feel like I should because I, sh whatever. It goes, it goes to the heart level of I need to. I put a corkscrew through my tooth. You feel something inside of you and you're like, I need this. I need to not get cavities like that again. That's horrible. I need to not die in five years, so I need to eat less bacon. And the passage we're looking at, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 to 20, is a should passage for me a lot of the time. It's probably a should passage for a lot of you. So let's look at that together. And this passage... If you're familiar with the book of Matthew, there's 28 chapters, so we're in the last chapter, and there's only 20 verses in the chapter, so we're in the last four verses of the last chapter of the book of Matthew. And the book of Matthew is one of the four Gospels, and the four Gospels are each accounts of Jesus' time on earth. When Jesus came to earth as a baby, he lived both as fully human, fully God. He spent some time teaching, doing miracles. Eventually, he was crucified on a cross, dead for three days. He rose back to life. And so in the account of Matthew, we're getting to the end of this story. He's risen back to life. Some of his followers have seen him alive a few times. And he had told the, his closest followers, his 11 disciples, to meet him somewhere. So then the 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. Some of them are still processing. You were dead for three days and now you're alive. This is a little crazy. I'm still trying to process this. I feel like if you had a friend die for three days, you saw them die, they were in a grave for three days and then they show up alive again, it would take you a few days to process that, right? Some of them are still processing. And then Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And it's interesting that he says it now because... <clears throat> there's not, like, just a point of clarification. When Jesus was on earth, a lot of people thought he was a good teacher. And they're like, he's a good religious teacher. He's doing some miracles. That, so God obviously must be with him. He must be a kind of special with God that he's doing miracles and healing people. But there's thought that he was more or less another human that just happened to be pretty close to God and pretty good religious teacher. And then... After dying and coming back to life, he's like, no, I'm not just a good teacher. I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. 
I have the authority of God because I am both human and God. He says, so with that authority, Jesus says, therefore, since I have this authority, I'm giving you a set of directions. If your friend, who you thought was just a good teacher, dies, raises back to life, they've proven that they're fully God, says, I've got this authority, now listen to me. You're probably going to pay attention to their four directions. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, in the, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so there's four directions to make, to go, to make, to baptize, and to teach. Last week we talked about teaching, and that's a bit of a challenge. And we're like, man, I should do this. Oh yeah, I can do this. I will do this. But whenever I read this passage, the first two commands are the hard part. The go and make disciples part is where I'm like, oh, I should be doing that more. I should be taking this more seriously. But I won't. I should, but I won't, right? And I should, but I won't because really everything that it should and I won't is normally because we don't really feel like life depends on it that much. I should brush my teeth, but I won't because I don't really believe that I'm going to get tooth diseases and have problems for the rest of my life from this. I should, but I won't because bacon's not going to kill me until it will. I should go and make disciples, but I won't because it's a lot more comfortable to stay and baptize people and stay and teach one another, not go and make disciples, go and make followers of Jesus where people aren't already followers of Jesus. It's really easy for me to say, oh yeah, I'd love to baptize anybody in this church that wants to get baptized. And the people in this church that want to get baptized are normally people that grew up in this church and they're born into this and they, we, they just automatically happened. But none of us would be here if the original hearers of this message didn't go and make disciples. Because the original listeners to these directions lived in Israel, this, and the Jewish people had had their Jewish God that they had followed for thousands of years. <coughs> and he had been like, you're my people, this is my religion for you, be nice to foreigners, but this is kind of how I'm going to show the world who I am, is through this nation. And so they never went, they always stayed. And then suddenly Jesus says, go to all the nations. This was the first time they'd heard the direction to leave the building. Sometimes on a Sunday, we've said something like, go and pray for different parts of mission. And you're like, what is happening here? We never do that. We stay in the building on Sunday morning. Church is at church. And he was throwing them this crazy idea of go and these people that God never wanted to talk to before, that God never reached out to before. I want you to go and tell them about Jesus. The word for nations is used to describe those that don't know God. Go and tell those who don't know God already about him and make them followers of God. And right now we're sitting in a city of 40,000, a little over 40,000 people. It's interesting because I looked up some numbers. Because sometimes you don't, if you want should to change the need, you've got to actually know what matters. 
So according to Statistics Canada, in 2021, total population of Canada was a little, uh, total population of Mission was a little over 41,000 people. And 40,625 of those people filled out this part of the survey. The number of people in Mission that identify as Christian is 12,905. So that's over a quarter of the people in Mission, they have to check a box, they check Christian. And that's a very broad category. There's a lot of things that fall a bit outside of uh, the beliefs of Christianity that would be included in there. But what's interesting is if you talk to the pastors in mission and you know the size of the pe- church congregations on Sunday morning, there's somewhere between 1,000 and maybe 1,500 people total that are in a church building on Sunday morning. So if we're generous, we say there's 1,500 people in mission on church on Sunday morning. With the way that people attend church nowadays, if there's 1,500 people at church on Sunday morning, about double that number, so 3,000 attend church occasionally and consider themselves part of a church community, and they're following Jesus in a community. 3,000 is less than 10% of 40,000. So less than one, in, so if you get 10 people from the city of Mission, you're lucky if one of them is actually following Jesus as part of a church community. We live in a city without, where most people live their life without Jesus. Think about if your faith fell apart and Christianity just didn't exist. Like you had some reason to go, Christianity's not true. I have to reject this. It's just not. Think about if you had to quit your faith. You just quit going to church on Sunday. You quit being able to pray to God knowing that he's listening. You quit being able to have that community that comes from the church. Would it change your life at all? Would you be a different person? How would you handle grief? How would you handle the challenging coworker? How would you go through life without Christ? I just want you to think about that for a minute. Close your eyes and think about if you had to live the next year without Jesus. All right. I hope that you're a little heartbroken. You're a little freaked out. You're a little bit like, that's a problem. That's most people in our city. If you go to your workplace, nine out of 10 people are living their life like that. Nine out of 10 people at the grocery store are living their life like that. I looked at another study of the city of Mission they do an annual citizen satisfaction survey. In 2022, they asked a couple questions, and I found some of the responses really interesting because they kind of shared some of the highlights of those responses. I'm going to share some of those. So please tell us what you like least about living in mission. And everybody's got their list. You're like, I know what I like least about living in mission. My biggest issue is the garbage service, but it is what it is. Some of the top issues were homelessness and drug use, bullying among our youth, a lack of resources and activities for youth, seniors, and kids. And there's another question. In your opinion, as a resident of Mission, what is the most important issue facing the community that should receive the most attention from the city? What problem do you hope the city can fix for you is basically the question. And there's some things that a city could pretty easily fix, like understaffed city departments. But then there's things where... The city can try, but it doesn't really seem like 
something that a government can always fix. There's public safety, there's supporting unhoused people, there's a lack of local spaces for parks, recreation, and cultural activities, there's aggression in the community, there's a lack of support and activities for youth, they want help with flood preparation, and helping people experiencing poverty, helping people who don't have enough money to eat three meals a day and have a roof over their head. And while I, I love our city, we've got some issues here. I found it interesting when Jesus talked about why he came to earth. What was, like, we talked about Jesus being on earth for 33 years. Why did he do that? What was he doing? And John chapter 10, verse 10, says this. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And the aggression, the poverty, the drug use, the bullying among our youth, the lack of space for people to meet, that sounds like stealing, killing, and destroying to me. It sounds like the thief is present in our city and effective. Which is really interesting. The thief is effective in our city. Because Jesus is using an illustration of him being a shepherd and caring for humanity as sheep and there being a thief coming in. And he's saying, the thief is coming for humanity to only to steal and kill and destroy. And Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. <coughs> and it, what does that life and life to the fullest look like? Jesus came, and before his death and resurrection, he spent three years doing what we call his ministry, and what he invited others to follow him into, and that was peacemaking. That was generosity. That was giving physical, emotional, relational, and spiritual healing to people. He didn't just, he brought whatever type of healing people needed. It was nurturing and supporting the kids and the youth and saying, hey, the young people matter. Invest in them. Don't just ignore them. And it was showing hospitality. And so Jesus came to earth and he set an example of what it was like to bring life and life to the fullest. And then it was peacemaking, generosity, healing, nurturing and supporting the youth, hospitality. And they said, come and be followers of me. And so if we're followers of Jesus, then hopefully we're people who are bringing peacemaking, generosity, healing, nurture for our kids, (coughs) and hospitality to our community. When I think about our church, I feel like our church is a place where that thrives. But then when I look at our city, I feel like that's an area, those are areas where we're struggling. Our surveys say that that's an area where we're struggling. (coughs) Excuse me. And so if you have nine and 10 people trying to bring this life and life to the fullest without Jesus, how successful are we going to be? We're going to be a city that struggles. We're going to be a city where the thief thrives. And if we go to church and make disciples at church and baptize at church and teach one another at church, it's going to stay nine, one in 10 people in mission who are followers of Jesus at best. So I want to challenge you to think about what would it be like if you think about your coworkers, your classmates, 
your neighbors, people you deal with at the grocery store. Think about what would be different if they were followers of Jesus. Think about what would be different if they were filled with the life that only God can bring, that doesn't come out of a human on their own, but comes when God empowers a human to follow him. The thief wouldn't have a place here. Our city wouldn't be defined by aggression and poverty and drug use and bullying. It'd be defined by peacemaking and generosity and healing. So the whole issue is, when we read the Great Commission, it says, go and make disciples of all nations. How many of you guys think, feel, read that and go, man, I should do that more? Anybody want to be honest to say they read that and they feel like they should? Right? Right? We know we should. <coughs> but we won't unless we feel that we need to. The issue isn't that you can't go and make disciples. The issue is that you don't feel the need to go and make disciples. The issue in my heart, the reason why I don't go and make disciples is because I feel like I should, but I don't feel like I need to. When I read these statistics, when I actually got to know the numbers, it changed my heart about this city. When I drive through the city, when I try to drive and just run errands, I try to let God actually open my eyes up to what he sees. Just like Reuben sees his coworkers with God's eyes and their value despite what's going on in their life, I try to open my eyes up and not, like when I drive by somebody where it looks like they're using drugs, I want to look away. When I drive by somebody who looks like they can't get to work because the buses are down, I want to look away. When I see youth where I can tell that the way that they treat each other and value each other is really not nice and that it's not good for each other, I want to look away. Because I want to just live in our little tiny church community of the 10% to have the life of Jesus. But if we want to actually follow this direction, if we want God to be present in this city, we have to let him change our heart. We won't until God changes our heart so we feel the need to. We won't go and make disciples in the city until we have God's heart and God's eyes. That when we drive to work, we want to cry when we see our city. Because we see 90% of the people here living their life without Jesus being present and active there. We want to cry when we hang out with our coworkers and we hear about the challenges they're facing in life without Jesus. Because we know what it would be like to face those challenges ourselves without Jesus and we wouldn't want to do that. We're like, oh, I'm so glad that I'm a follower of Jesus and it's okay. But they're not. So I want to challenge you to think about what would it be like to let God reshape your heart? So instead of a should, it's a need. <coughs> what would it be like to try to open your eyes and see people, not just at church, but people everywhere you go in this community what would it be like to try to see them as Jesus sees them? See them as the incredibly valuable human that he created for amazing good works that right now is living life without God, that is living, struggling to have the fruit of the Spirit without the Spirit in them, that's struggling to solve the issues in their family and their workplace without the support of God. What would it take to... Maybe pray and say, God, I want to hear your voice in this. I want you to change my heart. Make my heart like yours. 
make my heart softer, make my heart so I actually am willing to cry. Because everything in life teaches us toughen up and be emotionally strong and tough. Don't cry, don't fall apart, don't feel things. And yet God is a God that cries with us. What if Jesus had said, I should go and down to earth and live there for a while and die for the sins of humanity? But you know what? You know what? I don't really feel like I need to. I'm God. They're just humans. They're, they're humans. Like, he had to have such a vulnerable, soft heart to actually feel with us, to go, I know what it's like. I want to actually know what it's like to feel what humans feel. He chose to enter our experience before dying for us. I'm sure that shaped him so much. To live for 33 years as a human and to feel the human experience and go, they're overpowered by sin and I want to overpower sin for them so they're free to live as followers of me. So I want to challenge you. There's three steps. Three steps. And they're not points because they come in order. There's three steps. The first step is let God shape your heart. Let God make your heart feel the need to make disciples because it's not going to happen until you feel the need. It's not going to happen until you want to cry when you see people living life without Jesus. Whatever that looks like, whether that's spending time in prayer, whether that's spending time just walking or driving around the city, just intentionally looking, trying to see what God sees. Let God shape your heart. Then go. Because it's really easy to live your life in your bubble and not to spend time with people that are different than you. Just like Reuben was talking about, of having to connect with people where they don't have the same values, where they don't have the same perspective on life. It's harder. And go can look so different for each person. For me, it's like literally when I'm at the park with my son, pulling my earbud out and actually talking to the people next to me. Because, excuse me, I'm a little more sick than I thought. Uh, pulling my earbud out. It can be being intentional in the conversation at the barber shop. Whatever that looks like for you, how can you find a way to go and be with people who aren't like you? How can you get out of the 10% of people that are like you and get to the 90% that aren't? And then finally, make. And the way to make disciples is not to just be like, memorize this Bible verse. Here, I'm going to prove to you why you're so sinful and you need Jesus so bad. It starts normally by listening. Jesus would listen to people's problems and he'd go, what's your problem? What is a challenge you're facing? Where do you not have the life, of, life to the fullest and you need it? And how can I provide that? The problems of our city, it's parents who are going, my kids are being bullied. There's all these issues going on. I don't know how to change that. And maybe it's speaking into that. In our city, it can be going and looking at the poverty and going, hey, how are we practically going to serve that? Not look at it from a distance and maybe throw some money at the issue, but maybe serve with New Heights Church and their ministry where they actually serve those in poverty and the homeless. It can hear a coworkers need to say, hey, you need community? Come out to my community group. We go to the gym. And then we go to a coffee shop afterwards and talk about what we heard of a church. It can look different for each person. But I want to challenge you not to skip the first step of letting God make your heart like his so that you don't just feel like you should make disciples, but so you need to. Because I really believe that we need Jesus not to just fill this church. We need Jesus to fill this city. 
We need Jesus to fill our city with his life and his life to the fullest. That instead of being a city defined by aggression, we'd be a city defined by peacemaking. Instead of being a city defined by poverty, we'd be defined by the generosity that overcame the poverty. Instead of being defined by drug use, we'd be defined by the emotional and the physical and the spiritual healing that only Jesus can bring. Instead of being defined by the bullying among our youth, we'd be defined as being a city that loves and supports and nurtures our youth. And then instead of being defined as a city that doesn't have space for people to have community, it would be defined by a space, a city that's full of hospitality. I don't think that's just going to happen through our city government. I think that's going to happen through us letting God shape our hearts and going and making disciples, making followers of Jesus, sharing the life that God's given with us to us with those who need it the most. I'm going to invite the band up to lead us in Speak Jesus again and close us up in prayer. God, thank you so much that you didn't want the thief to win, that you came to give us life and life to the fullest. That we've experienced that. We're so thankful for that. But I pray that you would equip our hearts in our minds, and our lives, that we become people that can't help but go and make disciples, make followers of you, that we can't help but go to those who need you most and say, hey, I see your need and I might have a solution. And the solution is not me, the solution is Jesus. I pray that the city would change what's defined by, that it would be defined by the fruit of the Spirit, that it would be defined by the work that you came, the life that you bring to the physical to the emotional, to the relational, to this, our spiritual lives, God. I pray that each one of us would be a key part of that. In your name, amen.